You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. All right, please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, or more properly, maybe I should say, the letter of 1 Timothy. When we come to this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, sometimes I like to think of it in these terms. What, what would it be like for a person who had no understanding of the Bible whatsoever? You just open it up cold in front of you here this evening, and whether you, you plopped open a Bible and it opened up to 1 Timothy, and you look at this and you start reading, and I wouldn't blame such a person for asking, well, what is this? Well, the first thing we understand is it's a letter. We all know what a letter's like. I mean, today we write emails. I don't know how many of us actually write out a letter nowadays, but you know what one is. This is a letter from a man named Paul. Matter of fact, let's just read that first verse here together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So we understand this is a letter written by this man named Paul. And in the following verses, we're going to find out that he wrote it to a man named Timothy. Now, I don't know if you're into reading other people's mail, but God invites you to do this. This was a personal letter from the Apostle Paul written to his young protege, Timothy. Now, when I say young, I mean relatively young. Maybe there was something like about a 20-year age difference. And Paul, at this time, he's probably in his 50s, maybe his 60s. Timothy is probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s. So it's not like Timmy's... Timmy. It's not like Timothy. (laughs) That kind of came out, didn't it? It's not as if Timothy is a child, but he's younger. And, And we'll talk about some more of the details, but understand something about this. This isn't just a historical curiosity that we're interested in. Oh, look, we stumbled upon an ancient document, and it's a letter from this uh, ancient Christian to another ancient Christian. No, 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 no. We believe that this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is God's word for us today. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That guided by the Holy Spirit, when Paul wrote to Timothy... It was a letter from Paul to Timothy, but it was more than that. That the Holy Spirit had his eye upon, guided Paul, moved upon him directly, blew upon his heart, his mind, his pen, like the wind blows upon a sail and drove it to say exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted to say, not only to Timothy at that moment, but to God's people into the world throughout all ages. This is God's word given to us in the form of a letter from Timothy to, excuse me, from Paul unto Timothy. But look at who it is writing it. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The first thing Paul does is he makes this self-description, emphasizing his credentials. He's an apostle and his authority. Why is he an apostle? He's not an apostle just because he decided to take the title upon himself. 
Unfortunately, as is the habit of many today. He's not an apostle for any of those. He's an apostle by the commandment of God. God, in a divine and unmistakable way, declared Paul to be an apostle. Now, this man Paul, who wrote the letter, we meet him first in the Bible in the book of Acts. When we first meet this man, who also went by the name Saul of Tarsus, he was a violent opponent of Christianity and a persecutor of Christians, so much so that he was directly responsible for the murder of some Christians in those first few decades of the church. Paul's dramatic conversion from being a persecutor to being this chief apostle in the church. That's described in the book of Acts. And many years later, after Paul's conversion, God made it clear to himself and to the early Christians that he was uniquely called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I want to point it out again. When Paul says that he's an apostle, which by the way, the ancient Greek word Again, let's just pretend that somebody comes to this letter of 1 Timothy completely cold. Then I would just want them to know it wasn't originally written in English. That it was originally written in the language that Paul and the whole world used back then. It was an ancient form of the Greek language known as koine or common Greek. That kind of distinguishes it from classical Greek. So it was written in common Greek. And the word that Paul used there for apostle is a word that we, don't, we just don't really translate that word. We just bring it over in English. The word is apostolos. And we just take that word and put a little English flair and call it apostle. If you were to translate the ancient word apostolos, you'd have the idea of an ambassador. Maybe a special ambassador. Someone who has special authority. And who gave this authority to Paul? Well, God did himself. Notice this. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior. Again, let me just say something very quickly. I won't dwell on this point, but I don't want to leave this verse without making the point. No one on earth today has this apostolic authority. No one. No one has the authority to write scripture as Paul did. No one has the authority to speak with this kind of authority to to the entire church. Nobody has apostolic authority in this sense in the church today. Now, apostolic authority still exists. Do you know where apostolic authority exists? Here in the Bible. This is apostolic authority. Apostolic authority doesn't come from a title. It doesn't come from something like that. It comes from God's word itself. Now, one other thing. Notice this in verse 1. Paul begins kind of with a little bit of a heavy introduction. I mean, he's laid out his business card right away. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior. And you almost want to say to Paul, lighten up a little bit. Timothy knows who you are. But I want you to understand something. This letter was not only for Timothy. This letter would be read in the church where Timothy was a pastor. Or maybe I should um, clarify a little bit. Timothy, as we're going to see in just a moment, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I can't resist it. Timothy led the work in a city called Ephesus. 
And if we think of Timothy as a pastor of a church, I don't think we have quite the conception in mind properly. Timothy was somebody more so, yes, I'm sure he preached to a congregation, but more so he oversaw many congregations and churches. The work in the city of Ephesus, as described in the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 19, was broad, it was extensive. There must have been thousands upon thousands of believers in Ephesus and the whole region. So Timothy was more than just the pastor of an individual congregation, though I'm sure that much of his work had to do with that. But he also sort of supervised a group of pastors or elders or those who would lead churches. This letter would be read not only in Timothy's own congregation, but in all these congregations in the area. And it was important for them to know that Paul wrote with this authority. Now, verse 2. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we've learned a little bit about this fellow named Paul. What about this guy named Timothy? Well, The book of Acts tells us that Timothy came from a city named Lystra. It was in the province of Galatia. That's in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. He was the son of a Greek father and of a Jewish mother. And he could be considered by Paul to be a true son in the faith because Paul almost certainly, the book of Acts doesn't exactly tell us this, but it implies it, that Paul led Timothy to the Lord. That Timothy, this man who had a Jewish background and was raised with a knowledge of the things of God, both from his mother and his grandmother, what was brought to faith in Jesus the Messiah by Paul himself as Paul toured around that part of what was known as the Roman province of Asia Minor, we would call it today modern-day Turkey, as Paul toured around that area preaching in different cities, he came across this young guy, and when Paul first met Timothy, Timothy probably was still a teenager, and he led him to faith in Jesus Christ, and and, and he says, you are my true son in the faith, I've so to speak given birth to you in the Christian life, but I also want you to think about that phrase, the confidence that it would give both to Timothy and to the Christians in Ephesus. Right now, at the very beginning of the letter, Paul is letting all the Christians in Ephesus know, I consider Timothy my true son in the faith. You guys can look to him and trust his leadership because he's a faithful follower. And then he wishes him grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, that's in verse 2. Now, I find this interesting. When Paul wrote to churches, and many of Paul's letters were written to churches. Uh, Philippians was written to a church. Colossians was written to a church. Galatians was actually written to several churches. Galatians, an area, not just one city. Uh, Ephesians was written to a church, on and on. When Paul wrote to churches, he always gave them that greeting of grace and peace. Very familiar greetings in that part of the world at that time. You know what I find fascinating? When Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, who we would call them essentially today pastors, when Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, he doesn't just wish them grace and peace. He wishes them, look at there in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace. 
So for the pastors, he wishes them additional mercy. The church's grace and peace is good enough for you. We pastors, we need mercy. And God, God gives it to us in this greeting here from the Apostle Paul. Now, verse 3, we get to the real heart of why Paul wrote this letter. Here we go, verses 3 and 4. Ready? As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause endless disputes, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Right away in verses 3 and 4, you saw verse 1, Paul says, I'm the one writing the letter. Verse 2, he says, I'm writing it to you, Timothy, my true son in the faith. Verse 3, he's right down to business. And what's the business? Look at it there, the phrase in verse 3, remain in Ephesus. You see, Paul was with Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city on the western coast of the Roman province, Asia Minor. We would call it today Turkey. And that city there on the western coast of this Roman province, it was a big, large, influential city, and as Acts chapter 19 describes, it was a vast work throughout all the region, so much so that Acts chapter 19 says things like this, that the word of God went out throughout the whole region. I mean, there must have been thousands upon thousands of believers meeting in hundreds of different congregations in that whole area, because back then, most of the congregations would have been small, Because out of necessity, they met in homes. Okay, in any regard, Paul writes this Timothy, writes this, and he says, remain in Ephesus. We were together there in Ephesus, then I had to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is westward across the Aegean Sea in what we would call modern day Greece. Paul said, I had to leave town, Timothy, but I want you to, look at the phrase in verse 3, remain in Ephesus. Now, I just want to ask you a logical question. Why would Paul have to exhort Timothy remain at Ephesus? Because Timothy wanted to leave. Timothy must have had some desire, some sense, I'm done here in Ephesus. I need to move on. But no, Paul told him, you remain in Ephesus. And look, I would suppose that most everyone in ministry And it's been just a personal um, blessing, opportunity, good thing in my life over the many decades that I've served the Lord to to really have a friendship and an acquaintance and, and make connections with a lot of different pastors. And when you talk to a lot of different pastors or people in ministry, you find out that that almost everybody has at one time or the other, or sometimes several times, been confronted. I'm done, I got to get out of here. You start asking pastors, how many of you have wrote a letter of resignation at some time or another? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, they they can tell you all about it. Almost everybody at some time or another has had that thing of no, I'm done here, I got to move on. But you see, for some people, it's not an occasional feeling, it's something like a constant affliction. And that's what it was for Timothy. 
Timothy was like, I I can't stay here. I got to leave. Paul says, no, Timothy, right at the beginning of the letter, I want you to know you remain in Ephesus. There was probably an external pressure on him maybe to leave. Maybe there were people who wanted him to leave. Maybe there was something on the inside of Timothy that just said, I got to get out of here. And I can think at least of a lot of potential reasons why Timothy might not want to remain in Ephesus. Maybe Timothy just missed Paul. Paul, I love you. You're my mentor. You're the guy who's founded me in the faith. I am your son in the faith. I'd rather be with Paul, can I just travel around with you? I mean, after all, Paul, you don't seem to be stuck in any one place. Why can't I just be like you and follow you? That could have been it. He might have been intimidated by following Paul's ministry. Who would you like to be the pastor that succeeded the Apostle Paul? Good heavens, what, I mean, could you believe that? You could get up and preach the best sermon you never preached, and people, well, you know, it's good. He's not Paul, but he's pretty good. And who is Paul? Maybe Timothy had the case where it might have been that he was somewhat timid or reserved by nature. Maybe he was a bit intimidated by the challenge of leading this great work in the region of Ephesus. Maybe he was just discouraged by the normal discouragement and difficulties of being a pastor. There's plenty of that, believe me. Maybe Timothy at times questioned his own calling. The way that Paul seems to affirm in his calling suggests that maybe he questioned that. And maybe... He was just frustrated by the distracting and and competing doctrines swirling around among the Christians in Ephesus. But, But despite all of those potential reasons, there's no doubt that God and the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Matter of fact, as you take a look at the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 1, I see in the rest of the first chapter at least six reasons why Paul gave Timothy reasons to remain there in Ephesus. And maybe we'll note some of these as we make our way through the chapter. But notice, verse 3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Paul left Timothy with an important job to do, and this made it all the more important that he remain in Ephesus, the job was to make sure that correct doctrine, accurate teaching from the Old Testament and from the apostles, make sure that that's what's being taught in Ephesus. So notice, again, this brings us to one reason why it was very important that he remain there. Paul was concerned that Timothy would do everything he could to make sure that the Ephesians continued in proper doctrine, in the truth. Timothy, I'm leaving. You stay behind And as if you overlook these dozens, if not hundreds of congregations with these thousands of believers, you make sure to the best of your ability that they're being taught well and taught the truth. That's why it was important that he stay in Ephesus. Now, Paul did this because doctrine is important to God, that they teach no other doctrine. Now, doctrine is important to God, and it should be important to His people. Today, what a person believes, that is their doctrine. What a person believes is 
amazingly unimportant to the culture at large. Today, people don't care pretty much what you believe as long as you're sincere in your belief. If you have sincerity, that's enough. Now, I think it's excellent in our modern culture that people have pretty much the freedom to believe what they want to believe. But there's a difference between the freedom to believe what you want to believe, which we're all in favor of, and the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe. Who cares? Paul says it matters. We live in a day where the question of Pontius Pilate to Jesus dominates the culture. What was the question Pontius Pilate asked Jesus? He asked Jesus, what is truth? And he said it with that cynical sort of trail in his voice. What is truth? You have your truth. I have my truth. They have their truth. What is truth? And as Christians, we're bold enough to say that this book is the truth. That this book reveals to us Jesus Christ, who said of himself, you know it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not as if this book contains the truth in some way that's separated from God, separated from who he reveals himself to us to be in Jesus Christ. No, no, no. That this book reveals to us the God who is revealed perfectly in Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Truth is important to God, and it should be important to his people. And that's why he told them, look at verse 3 again, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy, be active about this. Matter of fact, in the original language that Paul wrote in, and I mentioned to you before, it's a form of the ancient Greek language, that, that word charge is a military word. It's the kind of word that a commanding officer gives to a subordinate. Now look, I, I don't know anything about the military. I never had the honor of serving in our military. God bless those of you who have served. But, but from what I understand, and I'll admit most of my understanding of the military is from the movies, I'll admit that. But when, when a superior officer gives an order, it's not a suggestion. It's like, well, you know, if you want to do it, fine. If you don't want to do it, it's up to you. That's not how it works, is it? And this was a military word that Paul used. He said, listen, Timothy, I want you to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You, you command this like a military officer. Now look, this is what we should be teaching in our churches. This is what we should not be teaching. This is important unto God. Nor, verse 4, give heed to fables and endless genealogies. It seems that one of the great dangers swirling around amongst the Christians in Ephesus was that they would get distracted by fables and endless genealogies. Again, these distractions are important. They're important to ignore. Timothy, remain in Ephesus so you can keep things on the right track so that you teach them to ignore these silly and speculative distractions. You see, in some ways, I don't know if there was an elaborate anti-Jesus theology being formed in Ephesus. It was more that they tended to get along by emphasizing the wrong things. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't give authority to fables and endless genealogies. Listen, the, the Bible gives us lots of opportunity to think and to speculate about different things. 
you know, well, what about this? Well, yeah, the, the, well, I'll give you something that just having come back from Israel, some people are kind of bringing up a thing about what, where did the temple stand? Was it here or was it there? Now, look, I, I'm not saying that there's no interest or profit in just thinking about that, but in the big picture, don't you see how that could become a silly distraction? I mean, if you invest too much time, if you invest too much in, I'm not saying it's something that is of no interest, but don't you see as Christians, we need to keep things in a proper perspective. Oh, okay, great, if I, if I want to wonder about this sort of thing or that sort of archaeological phenomenon, great, but it can never be my focus. My focus needs to be on Jesus Christ and his great work. Why? Because look at verse 4, these things cause disputes rather than godly edification. The eventual fruit of these man-made diversions is evident. They might be popular. They might be fascinating in the short term, but in the long run, they don't strengthen God's people. Again, and I don't know why I just picked this as an example, no doubt because I just got back from Israel, but if you want to have a big, long, extended debate as to the exact location of the the temple in Jesus' day, you could go on, but is, is that anything that believers should divide over? No. I mean, people might have different opinions, and I'm sure we'll all come to it later on or whatever, but listen, it's nothing that should cause division. And these things that cause disputes rather than godly edification, if it's beginning to call dispute or cause dispute, I should say, among God's people, it's evidence that too much emphasis is given to these side things. Verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Paul says, let me tell you about the purpose of the commandment in verse 5. By the way, I'm fascinated by that idea, the purpose of the commandment. If there was anybody who knew the purpose of the commandment, it was Paul. Please understand that before his conversion, when we first meet this man whom we call the Apostle Paul, when we first meet him in the book of Acts, what is he? He is a Pharisee. He is an expert in the law of Moses. He knew it frontwards and backwards. And Paul says, no, I understand more clearly now than ever what the purpose of the commandment is. The purpose of the commandment is what? Love from a pure heart. That's what God really intends to come forth from his commandments, from his word. Listen, if spending time in God's word does not produce love from a pure heart, if it does not produce a good conscience, if it does not produce sincere faith, something's wrong. And of course, this is something that we always need to hear, especially guys like me. I'm interested in doctrine. I'm interested in the truth. Man, I can drill down deep. But at the end of it all, if it's not producing sincere love in my life, if it's not producing a a, a true faith, well, then something's wrong. There's nothing wrong with the truth. There's something wrong in the way I'm pursuing it, in the way I'm holding it. No, it can't just be an intellectual abstraction. It needs to have that evidence of great love. If it fails to, verse 6, it can just lead to idle 
talk. Again, those are those vain speculations that he was referring to before. Now verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers and fornicators, for sodomites, kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now again, as a former Pharisee, Paul knew the law better than most people. And the purpose of the law, as Paul understood it, from from this perspective given to him by following Jesus as Messiah, the law is not our Messiah. The law is not our salvation, but the law points us to Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. So he says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin, really not to lead us to righteousness. In this sense, it wasn't made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate. It's not trying to say that the law is nothing to say to the righteous person, but it especially speaks to the ungodly person. And look at that list that he gives in verses 9 and 10. Did you see that? Verses 9 and 10, it's for the lawless and insubordinate, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Verse 10, for fornicators, for sodomites and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And if there's anything else other that is contrary to sound doctrine. Notice this. The law just very plainly tells us that these things are sin. Verses 9 and 10 give a whole list of sins. And Paul is just sort of rattling these off. These are sins in the culture all around him. And he goes, the law of God shows us that these things are contrary to sound doctrine. And this apparently sinful environment of Ephesus. Paul knew the city of Ephesus well. He knew that these things were practiced there. This sort of gives us another reason why it was important that Timothy remain at Ephesus. How would you like to do your ministry in a place that's characterized by this? Uh, What does it say in verse 9? Lawless and insubordinate, ungodly and for sinners, unholy and profane, murders of fathers, murders of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, if there's any other thing contrary to sound doctrine. That's where Timothy was a pastor. That's where Timothy served the Lord. Can you blame Timothy for saying, I'd rather be in Macedonia with the Apostle Paul? Listen. Serving in a difficult place isn't a reason to leave. It's a reason to stay. I mean, God, give us just kind of that ability to say, give us the hard jobs, Lord. Let somebody else take the easy jobs. We'll take the hard jobs. And and Timothy was just sort of humbled, no doubt, by the difficulty. He goes, Paul... This is a hard place to serve you. And as if Paul says, I know it's a hard place. The law exposes what a difficult place Ephesus is 
to serve. But don't worry about it, Timothy. You keep doing the work. And I love how he sort of wraps it up there at the end of verse 11. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The law cannot bring righteousness, but you know what can? The glorious gospel of the blessed God. That can bring the righteousness of God. In other words, the message of the gospel isn't, did did you see all those sins listed in verses 9 and 10? Do I have to read that list again? You got it, don't you? The message of the gospel isn't to read a list of sins and say, now stop doing that. Now, of course we should stop doing it, but that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is, is that you and I, we've been guilty of these things, and Jesus Christ has come to set us free from that sin and to wipe us clean from our guilt of that and to give us a power to live a life not dominated by those sins. That's the message of the gospel. You know, it's, it's true that sometimes the church has erred in this. Sometimes the church has acted as if the real message of the church is to read a list of sins like that and to shout to the world, don't do all this stuff. You're wrong for doing this. And it's true, the world needs to hear that in some sense. But that's not the gospel. That exposes the need for the gospel. What the good news of Jesus Christ is, is I'm not going to read that list from verses 9. Can I be excused from reading that list one more time? But did anybody read that list and somewhere along it you found yourself? Maybe in a little way, but you were there. Now, we can't be good enough to save ourselves. But what's the phrase from verse 11 again? I'm going to read it to you again because it's so good. According to the glorious gospel of our blessed God. That's how salvation comes to us. Now, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Oh, I love the heart of Paul. After giving that list of sins in verses 9 and 10, you might think that Paul is some super holy guy that just stands back from filthy sinners and condemns all their filthy sin. No way. Paul says, listen, I know that that verses 9 and 10, he goes, I had my own version of that list in my own life. And I want to thank God because he has enabled me. He entrusted me with the gospel. He counted me faithful. He put me into the ministry. And now Paul's mind is just absolutely stunned by the thought he did it knowing what I was formerly. What was he before? Look at it there. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. And Paul says that that history before Christ, it did not disqualify him from preaching the gospel at all. No, in all of this, Paul gives Timothy another reason to remain in emphasis. Follow the logic here. Paul was a pretty messed up guy, was he not? God chose him and used him. I'm sure Timothy, when he thought of the the largeness of the task of staying in Ephesus and doing that job, he thought about it and goes, man, I don't know if I'm up to the job. 
I don't know if I can do this. But then he would think, if God could take Paul and use him, then he could take me and use me. Isn't that a wonderful thought? It really is. I have been so depressed at times by the thought that I'm not this guy, that I'm not this other guy, that I'm not them. I mean, if I wanted to put it in modern terms, I could say, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not a Greg Laurie. I'm not these great and amazing. But then I think, I think, you know, I'm not those guys. But you know what? The same Holy Spirit that filled them fills me. Isn't that a wonderful thought? To, To recognize who I'm not. That's okay. I'm not those guys. I am what I am. But the same Holy Spirit of God fills me. And he goes, listen, if, if God could use Paul knowing his sinful past, God can use me. And, and he says, even though there was extra grace towards Paul, look at verse 13, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Ignorance and unbelief, they never excuse our sin, but it does invite God to show his mercy. And he did show mercy, and he showed abundant grace. Verse 14 The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Notice, it wasn't Paul's ignorance that saved him. Nobody's saved by ignorance. You might be saved in ignorance, but you're never saved by ignorance. It was the grace of the Lord that saved him. Which brings him to verse 15, and I love this verse. Paul writes to Timothy. And I I don't know, listen, it, it was common... In the ancient world, and we know that several of Paul's letters were written this way, where he would dictate a letter to a professional scribe. Maybe this letter was written like that. I I tend to think that Paul wrote this himself with his own hand. And if he wrote it in his own hand, I could see him maybe putting a little extra pressure on the quill right here. The letters are a little bigger. They're a little darker when he comes to what we call verse 15, but by the way, do I need to mention to you that, that what, what Paul wrote to Timothy, the letter he wrote, it was not divided in chapters and verses. Do we, do we understand that? Just so you know, it was just like one long running thing. And I, I think it's good the divisions we have into chapters and verses. That's good. It, it's helpful for us. But we just always need to keep it in the back of our mind that that's not in the original that Paul wrote. But when he came to what we call verse 15, Maybe Paul wrote it a little bolder, a little bigger when he writes this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Maybe he underlined that, I am chief. Well, to my knowledge, he didn't really underline in these Greek manuscripts, but I imagine it's so. Now, Paul uses a phrase for emphasis here. Do you see the phrase for emphasis? This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Back then, they didn't have, you know, bold print. They didn't have different fonts. They didn't have different colors. So Paul's making, this is really important, what I'm about to say. Here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not those who live under the illusion of their own righteousness. Jesus said it perfectly, as you would imagine he did. It's recorded in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, but it's other places as well. Jesus said it perfectly when he said that the doctor is for sick people. The physician is for the sick, not for the healthy. 
If your attitude towards Jesus is, hey, Jesus, you're a cool guy, you did your thing, that's great, but I don't need you, then Jesus essentially says, well, then I didn't come for you. I I came for people who know they need a savior. I came for people who know that they need something more than themselves. People will be honest about the emptiness of their life and the failings of their life. You could say this, that since Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that's the first qualification for being a child of God, being a sinner. Sinners are not disqualified from coming to God. Jesus came for you. If you're a sinner, that's who Jesus came for. Now, Paul adds to this in verse 15, and this is so beautiful, of whom I am chief. Now, we live in kind of a cynical age. People say things or write things, and we just kind of stand back up. Yeah, you don't really believe that, do you? You're just saying it, right? And in a way, I kind of want to react that way to, come on, Paul. You don't really believe you're the chief of sinners, do you? That's just kind of a spiritual thing you're spinning out there just to show, well, you know, I'm sure I'm worse than any of you and all that kind of thing. Can I tell you something? With all my heart, I believe that Paul earnestly believed that. Paul isn't throwing on some falsely spiritual cover on this. He believed it. He believed that he was the chief of sinners. This isn't a strange, false humility. He looked at the way that he had sinned. He believed that his sins were worse because he was responsible for the death, imprisonment, and suffering of Christians. Remember that Paul was an active persecutor of God's people before his conversion. Matter of fact, let me read you from Acts 26, verse 11. Ready for this? Listen carefully to this. Paul says, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign sinners. I imagine Paul remembering the time where he held a sharp dagger to the throat of a Christian and said, blaspheme Jesus of Nazareth. Blaspheme Jesus of Nazareth or I'll cut your throat. The Christian, in a moment of fear and panic, spoke spoke blasphemous words against Jesus. And I I, I imagine that image burned into Paul's mind. I imagine him waking up sometimes in the middle of the night, remembering what he did. I killed them. I persecuted. I made some of them blaspheme Jesus. Now do you see if Paul remembered that from time to time? How he could say, I am the chief of sinners. Now, notice this though. (laughs) Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, including the chief. There are worse kinds of sins, and sins that harm God's people are especially bad in God's eyes. And Paul says, I think I was an especially bad sinner, but Jesus saved me. And if he could save Paul, he could save you. If he could rescue Paul, he could rescue you. 
I, I can't believe I've made it all the way through this study. And not that we're done yet. We've got a little more to go to the end of the chapter. I can't believe I've made it this far through the study without quoting Charles Spurgeon even once. Here's... <laughs> Here's a tremendous quote from Charles Spurgeon right here when he's thinking about this idea that if God saved the chief of sinners, he could save you. Ready? Despair's head is cut off and stuck on a pole by the salvation of the chief of sinners. No man can now say that he is too great a sinner to be saved because the chief of sinners was saved 1,800 years ago. If the ringleader, the chief of the gang, has been washed in the precious blood and is now in heaven, why not I? Why not you? Isn't that a beautiful thought? And I just love Spurgeon's phrase. I wish I could write a phrase that good once in my life. Despair's head is cut off and stuck on a pole by the salvation of the chief of sinners. No man, no woman need ever despair that they're too bad for the kingdom of God. Why Because Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. No, the person who should tremble is the self-righteous religious professional who they don't spend all the time looking in a physical mirror to look at their own physical appearance, but they spend all their time looking in a spiritual mirror, admiring their own spiritual appearance. That's the person who should tremble. But those who recognize their great need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, you just come to Him. Verse 16. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. I find it fascinating that Paul considered his own conversion and work for the Lord to be a pattern. Isn't that interesting? A pattern for those who will believe. You can say this is true in some sense of us all. What God does in others is a pattern for us of how he may work in our life. But there was a special sense in which this was true of Paul. Verse 17. Paul has to just praise God, thinking about the greatness of God's work in his life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's as if Paul couldn't think about how bad he was and how great God is without just praising God. God, you are the king eternal. You rule and reign in complete power and glory. God, you're immortal. You exist before anything else started and you are the creator of all things. God, you're invisible. You you are not completely knowable by me. You're greater than I can ever imagine. And God, you alone are wise. You are God, I am not. Therefore to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Can I find in that one more reason for Timothy to stay in Ephesus? Timothy, remember the greatness of the God you serve. You know, it's easy for us to look at our own weakness and failings because we can write a big, long list about that. But you know, when you think about the greatness of the God we serve, the greatness of the God who's rescued us, we say, okay, I can keep going. That God fills my life. Now, verse 18, and we'll just continue on to the end of the chapter. He says in verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 
Again, he gives this solemn charge, this, this military command that you, notice this in verse 18, according to the prophecies. Apparently, at some time in the past, the Holy Spirit had spoken in some spontaneous way through prophecies, through some brother or sister, and given Timothy some kind of assurance, some kind of confidence, some kind of guidance regarding his future. And God may speak today through others in a prophetic manner, but please remember what the Bible says, that all prophecies must be tested. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29. That we should test all prophecies, and I would say that we should test them first, of course, according to the Word of God. Because if somebody prophesies something, but if that prophecy contradicts the Word of God, guess which one is correct? This, correct, your supposed prophecy, incorrect. But then also I would say, just according as well, you judge it to the discernment of those in spiritual leadership connected to such a thing. And I always think that when we consider this phenomenon of prophecy, that we need to be on guard against extravagant prophecy. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a little hard to describe exactly, but there's just sort of this phenomenon of extravagant prophecy where people are always saying things like, this person or that person, they're going to have the most powerful ministry the world has ever seen, on and on and on. I just have, cultivate a bit of healthy suspicion of extravagant prophecies. I mean, what's the point? To persuade you how great you're going to be? Do, does any of us need such a suggestion to us? How about the prophecy, you know, keep your head down and keep humbly serving the Lord? That's a great prophecy, isn't it? But, but again, it's not extravagant enough for the ears of many people. You know, today in some circles, it's not unusual to hear somebody being declared as being greater than Paul, greater than Peter, Moses, or Elijah. Prophecies go forth like this. You'll be like a prophet like unto Daniel and receive an anointing ten times greater than any of your associates. Friends, these kind of things are obviously extravagant. And you know what else they are? I want to say this tenderly in love, but I want to say it directly. They're manipulative. Who wants to speak against such a thing? That, that kind of prophecy is going to, no, I'm sorry you're not going to receive an anointing 10 times greater than Daniel. All right, I'll just, yeah. But but you, you seem like such a downer when you're honest about that. Now, when I read that passage from Timothy, continue on according to the prophecies spoken, that, that verse has a special resonance to me because when I was a very young believer together with other believers, just in a circle of prayer, seeking the Lord, praying for one another, prophecies were spoken over me. And, and they were much bigger than a uh, 15-year-old goofball from Rialto had any reason to, you know, kind of think about. But I, I think that God gave me almost a supernatural wisdom because it was beyond the wisdom that a 15-year-old goofball from Rialto should have 
to not worry about such prophecies. Lord, if it's from you, you're going to do it. And again, just to keep your head down and serve the Lord. So I know God can speak in a prophetic way over a person's future. We need to be on guard against extravagant and manipulative um, words. All right, continuing on now, verse uh, 19. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. You see, this is an essential aspect for Timothy's ongoing fight. You have faith and a good conscience. Some people have rejected it. And now in verse 20, we conclude with two examples of people who have rejected those tools for the warfare. He says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, we we don't know anything else about these fellows, Hymenaeus and Alexander, We only know them from the mention right here. But apparently, these were men who opposed Paul's work and the Holy Spirit's work there in Ephesus. And Paul had to put them under some kind of discipline as believers. He said he delivered them to Satan, which sounds like a very scary phrase, doesn't it? What does that mean to deliver somebody to Satan? Well, Paul doesn't explain anything what it means here. But from other passages of Scripture, especially from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we gather that what he means by this is he put them out of the church. The idea simply being this. In this conception, the church is God's domain and outside the church is the devil's domain. That's just one way to think of it. There's a larger sense in which the earth is the Lord's and we understand that. But in this conception... The church is God's community, and outside the church is the devil's. And when when Paul put these people out of the church, it was as if he delivered them unto Satan. No, you guys aren't welcome here anymore. You're disruptive. You're teaching false doctrine. You're leading people in all sorts of weird distractions. You're arguing over fruitless things. No, you, you must do that. Notice this that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know what? There's a hope in there. Isn't it possible? I mean, look, we're down on Hymenaeus and Alexander, and rightfully so. They're, They're bad guys here, are they not? But isn't it possible that at some later time they came back to the apostle Paul? Paul, we've learned not to blaspheme. We miss the community of the people of God. We don't like being outside that community. God's spoken to our hearts. And we humbly, we've learned, Paul. And what would the apostles say to, to people in that situation? He would say, get out of here. No, don't you ever darken the door. No, what would he do? He said, well, if God has taught you, you've learned not to blaspheme, you come in. Mind your manners, mind you here. <coughs> Excuse me. Mind your manners among God's people, but you're welcome here. And it, it just reminds us that whenever there must be church discipline, The goal is always restoration. The goal isn't punishment. The goal is restoration. And obviously, I have no idea whether or not that restoration was realized in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander. I don't know. But at least there's there's a hint that it was possible by that phrase so they may learn not to blaspheme. By the way, I would say 
we can end with this, that it gave Timothy one more reason to remain in Ephesus. He should do it because not everybody else remains faithful. Look, I I don't know if you've had the experience, I'm sure many of you have, maybe most of you have, where someone dear to you has forsaken the faith. Maybe they've done it in a dramatic way. Maybe they just drifted. But whatever, at the end of it all, they've forsaken the faith. Listen, I know that that's greatly discouraging. It causes a pain of, it causes a pain of heart. But that shouldn't make any one of us say, well, then maybe I'll give up as well. We must instead say, no, if there are those who will ultimately prove themselves to be unfaithful to the Lord, then all the more reason for us to remain faithful and to honor him, to be a contrast to those like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Well, we are going to end it here at the end of chapter 1. Next Wednesday, we'll pick it up and continue on in Paul's letter, where next week he's going to begin specifically talking about order in their church meetings. Timothy, this is what I want you to keep in mind in the church meetings. But this has been a wonderful beginning, is it? You, Timothy, you remain in Ephesus. There's work God has for you to do. Now look, it's not like the Apostle Paul believed that a person could never change their ministry, so to speak. Paul did it all the time. But there was a time, a place for Timothy to strengthen himself in the Lord and to continue his work in Ephesus. I pray God will give us that strength to continue in the field where he's placed us. Father in heaven, we're grateful for it. We're grateful for the encouragement that comes from your word. And Lord, we believe it, that if you were great enough to rescue the chief of sinners, you're great enough to come and rescue us. So Lord, would you please do it in our midst? And Father, I pray too that you would use that to give us some confidence as we pray for those who don't know you yet. Lord, you've already rescued the chief of sinners. Lord, you can bring in the rest now too. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness to us. Encourage us in and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. You have been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.